Welcome back to Danger in the Dust, a KOLD original podcast. I'm Erin Christensen. In our first episode, we talked about Valley Fever, what it is, who is at most risk to contract it, and we discussed our own personal experiences with the disease. And right here in our own backyard in Tucson is the University of Arizona's Valley Fever Center for Excellence. And heading up the research and work there is Dr. John Galgiani. He spent the last four decades working in this field studying valley fever, and specifically the treatment and detection, as well as working to develop a vaccine to prevent the disease in both humans and animals. So the the first thing we want to talk about is just how unusual and, and kind of rare overall valley fever is. I mean, of course, we, we know that it can be contracted and has been tracked in California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, but nearly, what, about two-thirds, most of the cases, the, the, the majority of cases come out of southern Arizona. Why is that? It's simply because that's where the people um, who live in the endemic area live. Um, and it's really the snoring deserts of Arizona, so it goes as far up as uh, into Maricopa County. So it's certainly here in Tucson, but all the way up I-10 between Tucson and Phoenix. Um, and historically, the disease was originally sort of a California problem because it was first uh, thought of as a rare disease that came to uh, Stanford Hospital when it was in San Francisco, but then it was discovered to be a very common disease in the San Joaquin Valley of California, Central Valley. Um, And for many, many years, it was pretty rural. It was, you know, in ranch country and farming communities in rural Arizona, but that's all changed. And with the population growth of the state of Arizona in the endemic region, uh, there are now more people at risk of getting valley fever in Arizona, and the numbers are just like you say, roughly two out of three uh, infections in the entire country come from um, our state. And actually, if you wanted to draw a really fine point on this, 50% of all U.S. infections occur in Maricopa County. So it's more of a population thing. It's just that that's the greater concentration of where the people are within that area that is plagued by the fungus. That's exactly right. With our average temperatures across Arizona and the Western US increasing, does that, is there any sort of correlation between the increasing temperatures and perhaps increasing spores or cases of valley fever? Well, there is some um, satellite kind of research, uh, satellite-based research which has shown a correlation between uh, increasing um, dust and um, a dust particle distribution around the Western United States and the increased cases of valley fever. Um, they haven't really connected that on year to year variation. And in fact, year to year, there is a pretty strong correlation between rainfall uh, leading to larger numbers of cases in subsequent seasons. The idea being that the fungus has a bloom in the soil where it grows when it gets rainy. And and then when things do dry out, there are more spores to get into the air. Um, and then when things are dry is when the spores actually do get in the air and, um, and cause infections because people inhale these spores. But whether or not, um, you know, climate change in the long 
cycle that we're discussing with climate change uh, is going to increase the range or not, you know, only time will tell. There was actually a, a bison discovered at an archaeology dig that's 10,000 years old, and it showed spherules or the tissue phase of the fungus in some of its bones. So that bison was up in Nebraska. So there is the idea that perhaps this over long stretches of time, you might see changes in the in the region of endemic for valley fever fungus. That is fascinating about the bison. So what does that say about the impact on our bodies over time that you could see that that degradation in the bones this many hundreds and thousands of years later? <laughs> well, um, yeah, yeah. it was a nice find, um, but in fact, most people don't get it in their bones, and that's very fortunate. It's a small percentage. Certainly, animals can do that, but in humans, it also can do that. In fact, we call that bloodborne spread or dissemination or disseminated valley fever away from the lungs, which is the source of the infection in the first place, where you inhale a spore. But that happens only, we think, in maybe one out of 200 people that get infected. The most usual form of this illness is not in the bones or the brain or in the skin, which all can happen, but is much less common than the pneumonia or community-acquired pneumonia sort of syndrome with chest pain, coughing, night sweats, weight loss, and also uh, some immunologic responses. So you have uh, problems like um, uh, lots of aches and pains. One of the synonyms for valley fever is desert rheumatism uh, because those aches and pains aren't really the fungus being in the bones and joints. It's the immune response makes you hurt. So if it does get into your, say, your brain, <laughs> since that's something that I don't think most people are aware of at all, what happens? Well, that's a real problem, as you might imagine. Um, that sets up an illness, which is really a meningitis, just like a bacterial meningitis, although this doesn't is not nearly as fulminant as a bacterial meningitis. It is, however, if you don't treat it, uniformly fatal. So this is a, that's a serious problem with, with the fungus getting into your um, lining of the brain called the meninges, which is why it's called meningitis. Um, we do have treatments for that, uh, and that's a very small percentage of all infections. So, so there's good news that most people don't get that. But it's also important to know that some do. And and that that is a major problem and identifying those people as early as possible is part of the reason that people should know about this disease. And I think a, a subsequent segment, we could come back to this whole question of understanding this disease for what it is, both the good and the bad, um, is probably the most important thing we can do right now, other than to realize that there are many other things we could do if there was research funding available to get better drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics. I, I recall when I was diagnosed back in 2012, hearing about a vaccine um, and, and thinking that, okay, in about 10 years, you know, we're all going to be vaccinated against this and that they would start initially perhaps with dogs and kind of test it out there and see how that goes, because we know this is a big issue with, um, you know, animals why that that stopped didn't it well no actually it didn't stop and there's a lot of actually very exciting developments in that regard 
Um, when you, you're right, when you were discovering about valley fever, as I recall, at that time, it was the first that you'd heard of valley fever. Remind me if that's the case, that you, when they said you have valley fever and the problems you had, you said, what's valley fever? <laughs> well, I had heard of it, <laughs> uh, but I didn't know that it could, you know, impact someone as acutely as what it did me. Right. Right. And so, and so, um, a lot of people are in that boat. But in in terms of a vaccine for valley fever, it's been, you know, a I think of it as sort of the holy grail because we know that so many people, perhaps everybody who gets infected, actually does become immune, so that they don't get second infections. They can have problems with the first infection. Uh, you certainly did, um, and others have even more problems. Uh, but it's always that first infection. It's not. Uh, a second infection, suggesting that the infection creates an immune response that is very protective. And uh, people have been working on this since literally the 1950s. And when you got sick, we had a very active program called the Valley Fever Vaccine Project that was funded with actually California state dollars. There was money from a foundation, the California Healthcare Foundation, but it was matched dollar for dollar by California state tax dollars, which is kind of interesting in that three of the five collaborating laboratories on that program were out of state. So they were sending tax money from California to fund research on valley fever in Texas and uh, in Arizona in my laboratory. And we, we made some progress, but it kind of um, hit some walls because the cost of developing the vaccine we discovered was prohibitive. We couldn't make it. And that was kind of... Um, unsettling. We were annoyed by that, let's put it that way. And more recently, um, here at the University of Arizona, one of my colleagues, Mark Orbach, um, discovered a new vaccine by taking a full gene out of the fungus itself. And just stay with me here. I'm going to go through a little biology. What happened when he removed a gene from the fungus, and that's kind of easy to say, but harder to do. It's There's some molecular biology there. <laughs> But he did it very nicely, and that, that gene actually is critical to the growth of the fungus in tissue. And, and so it became a mutant because it had the gene taken out, but that mutant no longer causes disease. Um, not because the immune system controls it better, but because it simply isn't able to grow after infection. And what is even more interesting and very practical is that if you vaccinate a mouse with that mutant, put that mutant, few of those spores in a syringe and administer it to a mouse, that mouse now becomes immune to subsequent infection with very virulent spores of this infection. So it it is actually an extremely robust and very effective protection as a vaccine. That's very cool. If you, you, Did I yeah. make it? clear to you what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, so by genetic manipulation of the fungus, we made it so it doesn't cause disease, but it's still able to create the immune response that a regular infection does. And, and as a result, it looks like a beautiful vaccine. And it's also relatively inexpensive to make because the fungus does it for us. You grow the spores and the spore is essentially the vaccine uh, we, there's some tricks there to get it into a bottle in a stable form, but but basically that's it. And and we we um, 
told the NIH about this in a in a research application and said, you know, why don't you let us do this for dogs? Because I think we could get there rather quickly. And if we could show that a vaccine that prevented valley fever in dogs worked, then that would be a lot of reason to think it might also work for humans. And they bought that idea. So it turns out the NIH is all about human health and not so much as much as we all like our own pets. They don't really fund vaccines to help pets, but they did in this case because of it as a prototype uh, to uh, help uh, move it forward for human use. And in fact, that grant, which was matched with some with a partner, a commercial partner, is now on track, we think, to become a commercial veterinary vaccine for dogs, uh, hopefully this year, but the way things work, it may not be until 2022. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Yes, that's really amazing. <laughs> I mean, people will be thrilled to hear that. But but so, I mean, I know I love it and Aaron loves it and all of us dog lovers and dog owners love to hear that. But where does that leave us on the human side? We've already found some human vaccinologists. It turns out that the people who make vaccines go forward for humans are a different group of people than those that make vaccines for cattle and for dogs. And um, and we've identified some really very well-trained, very experienced people to help us with that. And we've identified the path to do this. We've actually, with them, submitted a grant application. Um, it's really a contract proposal. Uh, to do just that, to take the first steps to move from a formulation that would be used for pets to a formulation that would be suitable for humans, and then to initiate what they call phase one clinical trials uh, in people to evaluate whether it is safe and whether it is able to produce the immunity that we think it will. So thank wow. you. I, I can't give you a timeline on that. It simply needs support. Um, and uh, it's a much more ambitious problem to do this for humans. I might say the cost of getting a vaccine through the USDA, which is the agency that approves veterinary vaccines, is probably in the order of something less than $15 million. Um, but that's probably funded. The cost um, in round terms of how much it would cost to take this vaccine through human trials for FDA approval is probably 10 times that amount, 150 to $200 million. So it's a big challenge. Um, I think valley fever is a very important endemic biohazard here in, in this part of the United States. It's, it's something that we live with and a vaccine could prevent much of the impact. We think the economic impact of uh, valley fever to Arizona, a recent um, model uh, reported about uh, $750 million, a little over $750 million in 2019. So that's the annual cost. So, so the funding it would take as a public health enterprise to get a vaccine for humans actually can be easily justified. But it's a little bit different argument for asking a commercial um, investor to take the risk vaccine development for this small disease. You mentioned it's a rare disease, and, and actually it is a rare disease if you take the whole United States. 
that uh, it's considered an orphan disease because it's less than 200,000 at any one time in the United States. But here in Arizona, it's anything but rare. It's a quarter to a third of all community-acquired pneumonias is caused by valley fever. Um, you asked, um, and I can touch on what the current activity of disease is in the state, but it, it's usually the second or third most commonly reported disease in the state to the Department of Health Services. Um, so it's anything but rare here in Tucson and in Phoenix and all points in between. I don't want to hog the floor here, but just to follow up on that, what should people do if they want to try to get this funded? Does that mean we need to write letters to our state legislators, to the governor? Like, how, how do we, because if we're the ones being impacted um, here in Arizona, it seems like that that's the most likely route if it's impacting our um, our, our gross state product. I, I think um, you're hitting on a very important question. It turns out that um, in the Central Valley of California, voters vote on valley fever. <laughs> they, they've grown up there. They're very familiar with the disease. They know somebody that had a very bad case of it, and they want something done about it. The reason uh, the vaccine project was being um, uh, uh, motivated in California was because of the uh, mobilization of voters in uh, Southern um, Southern California, and especially the Central Valley of California. They send congressmen uh, from Bakersfield to Congress who set up the Valley Fever, uh, Congressional Valley Fever Task Force, because they want to, uh, you know, increase um, interest in this disease congressionally. And I I think it would be valuable if Arizonans understood how important that is. I think because people often have not grown up here, they moved to Arizona from elsewhere where valley fever is still rare. Um, they don't really understand as well as the, our colleagues and friends in, in Bakersfield do that this is a very important problem to us that live here. Um, and I, I would say the more you know about this, the more you ask, why shouldn't something be done about it? I have a question. So it was something that you just touched on just a few minutes ago when you said um, that a majority of people, almost every everybody, doesn't um, have another, uh, I guess, a resurgence of valley fever or you kind of have an immunity to valley fever once you have it one time. What um, is something I was told by my doctor is it is considered a pre-existing condition. Um, it's something that you do have forever um, and potentially could come back if your body's in any way immunocompromised. Is that your understanding and is that something that's of a bigger concern too down the road for people who maybe had a mild case and didn't ever know they had valley fever but one day could? Yeah, that's yeah. a great question. Uh, so we underlying your question is that um, that we really think that you, even though so many people get over this and never have a problem with valley fever again, it's not that you actually eradicate the fungus from your body, that it kind of goes to sleep. And it goes to sleep because of a very good immune system that um, in sort of a um, diplomatic way um, encourages the valley fever fungus to go to sleep. Uh, and that can stay that way for the rest of your life. But, but it does require, uh, we think, um, constant immune surveillance. And so people who lose that immune 
control, that is patients with AIDS particularly, or people who get organ transplants, and possibly those who take these um, drugs for rheumatoid arthritis, the biological response modifiers like Humira, um, or those sorts of drugs, uh, they, they may run a risk of getting reactivated disease uh, and because the fungus stops sleeping. Uh, they turn out to be a small percent of all bad cases because most people aren't that uh, immunocompromised. Um, it is true that if you're immunocompromised by those kinds of comorbidities, you run that risk of a problem with valley fever. But because so many people are not immunocompromised, that's not normal. Uh, the complications I see in my clinic are usually in people without those immunocompromised. So it's not just a disease of the debilitated, it's a disease of, of, uh, of normal people. And one of the things about that is pretty interesting to answer the simple question, why? <laughs> because those people are normal. They don't have lots of risks to other kinds of infections like immunocompromised patients do. And most of the evidence suggests it has something to do with the immune response um, and that they don't control the disease like most people do. And, and it's a very challenging problem as to try to figure that out. We're actually actively working on that with the NIH. Part of the work is done here at the University of Arizona and part of it back at the clinical center in, in Bethesda. And we're making some really nice strides to understand the subtle differences between people who get complicated valley fever and those that don't. And it probably involves subtle differences in multiple genes that then act in concert in the same pathway to end up having a bad outcome rather than one big mutation in a single gene. You know, I guess, you know, that that was kind of when I contracted valley fever when I was diagnosed, I was told, and my previous knowledge of it was just, you know, a lot of people just get it. You kind of feel like maybe you have mono, you're a little tired for a while, you cough a little bit, it's easily confused with allergies, and then all of a sudden, you know, it just goes away, and a lot of folks don't even realize that they had it until they go in for something else and they have a lung x-ray done, and, you know, the scars are then visible on their lungs. That was my understanding of what valley fever did. But of course, I learned quite a bit that it just runs the gamut from, you know, that kind of an infection to basically becoming disseminated and it can become fatal. So I, I, I'm really encouraged by the fact that you guys are studying why it seems to impact certain, you know, people more. I mean, I was healthy. It, I, I was obviously younger at the time. I exercised. I ate right. I thought this would never be something that would cause me you know, to lose a lobe of my lung over. And and it's just, it's amazing to me why it attacks certain people more, even people who are really healthy. That's a very interesting um, thought. Um, and we, um, I, I would emphasize that even the quotes, mild form of valley fever, the self-limited form is anything but um, a one or two day affair. The people who seek medical attention for that, which is roughly one out of two people that inhale a spore. Those people usually are sick for weeks to months. Um, so it's really more, a, you think of it more like a pneumonia than it, like a flu-like illness. Um, and it, um, the state uh, Department of Health data suggests that half the people that work lose at least two weeks from work in this on average. 
Um, I told you about the uh, the cost uh, impacts. Um, there's just and and fatigue can be one of the very last symptoms to go away, and it does go away, but it often takes many many weeks, even many months, uh, to resolve. And um, you know, you think fatigue. What's what's the problem with that? But people can't go to work. Um, you know, these are often people that are 110 percenters. They hate it. <laughs> That they can't do. They look fine, but they, you know, it's it's actually very similar to some of the descriptions of long COVID. Uh, and I'm hoping that some of the knowledge we learn about what happens after you get SARS-CoV-2 uh, infections may carry over to understanding that fatigue syndrome that is very real in people who get valley fever. That is something I wanted to talk about next. Is is because several times in this discussion already i've thought about covid how has the arrival of covid complicated your work over the last year complicated reporting and a third prong of that question is has it helped does the masking i mean does any of that is there any preventive uh measure that that we've learned from covid that could help inform protection now from Valley Fever? Yeah, those are really great questions. Um, we actually were quite interested in understanding uh, the reporting of Valley Fever in relation to the pandemic we've just been through. Hopefully we are on the backside of, but we aren't quite out of the woods yet. Um, but um, what was clear was early last year, as people were seeing this rise in Arizona of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections. Um, there was a drop-off in cases of valley fever compared to previous years. And um, more than likely what was happening, there was a drop-off in all sorts of healthcare at that time. And I think what was happening was everyone was focused on whether or not you had COVID and, um, and they didn't test for anything else. So there were, it was less testing, but that sort of resolved itself in the mid 2020. And um, and then what we saw later was probably an increase in part due to people who were hospitalized for COVID were being routinely also tested for valley fever. And one of the statistics that popped out in some analysis we did this spring was that in hospitalized patients, for every four patients that were diagnosed with COVID after hospitalization, an additional patient was diagnosed instead for valley fever. So we're not talking about co-infections, but but it was that common. <laughs> um, and you couldn't tell the presentation of one from the other on the front end of this. So, so it could have been either. More recently, and I, I'd like to point out that we're actually increasingly in an uptick of disease. And I actually pulled up for today. Let me just see if I can find it here. I hope I don't get in your way here. I'm looking at statistics year to date, which is now week 24, um, for for cases reported to Department of Health Services in, in Phoenix for the state. It's 5,917, so almost 6,000 cases for the first four, 24 weeks of this year. In 2020, it was 3,929, so 3,900. That's quite a difference. 
And for comparison, the highest year on record for Arizona was 2011. And for the first 24 weeks in 2011, the number was 5,636. So we're now actually ahead of the numbers um, year to date for 2021 than we were in the highest year on record for Arizona. And the reasons for that are, you know, uh, everyone sort of shrugs their shoulders. It could be better recognition. That's certainly a possibility. I'd like to take a little credit for the Valley Fever Center helping with that. Um, but frankly, getting doctors to change patterns of healthcare is a challenge. Uh, they're slow to change. Uh, it could be that we are just like you say in a dry period and there are more spores in the air and more people are getting infected or it still could be some residual effect of COVID or people suspecting COVID and then concurrently testing for COXI uh, for that reason. But the statistics are that there are more cases being reported this year, year to date than yet on record uh, in past years. The groundbreaking news about a potential vaccine is what we are talking about next. Join us for our next episode when we're joined by Dr. Mark Orbach, a fungal geneticist who talks about his work developing a vaccine and when it could be available. You're listening to Danger in the Dust, a KOLD News 13 original podcast.